we're gonna get more of emo Jamie as time goes on. Sure, they see the money and the titles and... <laughs> but they, they don't see my desire to be a dancer! <laughs> I really feel a sense of Tywin getting a taste of his own medicine here. If you for your entire life have been a merciless, intransigent, over-intelligent, manipulative son of a bitch, guess what's going to happen when you have three children? Uh, next chapter, Aya. Aya! 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 <laughs> Going for a walk, Aya! John gives this speech to the, the other people on the wall. It's a really effective one. We will not go quietly into the night! We're gonna survive! Yes! Hello, and welcome to Shark Liver Oil. It's our coverage of George R. R. Martin's A Storm of Swords. And this, as you know it, I know it, is part 10. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. You enjoying this, Dave? It's a new kind of I am, uh, you take a, a much more sort of <laughs> lyrical, melodious approach to, <laughs> to announcing this. Okay, well as we do each and every week, I need to go through this convoluted process of telling you which part of the book we're reading this time. This is without fail my favourite part of the week, by the way. <laughs> of course, George R. R. Martin's publishers sell this book in one of two ways. It's either one big book, or they sell it as two books. Now, we have the two-book version of A Storm of Swords, and we're on to book two of that two-book version, which is called Blood and Gold. Still with me? Good. Now, if you're reading the two-book version of Blood and Go- of The Storm of Swords, then we're reading from page 269, which is a chapter about Jamie, uh, which begins, The King is Dead. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. We're going as far as page 320, which is another chapter about Jamie, which begins, The White Tower, or A White Book in a White Tower, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. So that's the bit we're reading today. If you've got the big single book, then you're going to have to work it out from the chapter names. And uh, that's that. So I think it's about time we, we we move away from the, you know, massively annoying, difficult descriptions of books and into the actual content, you know, the meat, the beef. The beef. Um, yeah. Before we do that, actually, sorry to tantalise you and then draw back, but um, I'll just have a quick mention. If you want to get involved in uh, Shark Liver Oil, any comments to make on Game of Thrones or on the podcast itself all you need to do email sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com that's sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com make sure you do put podcast in that also go to a shark liver oil salesman and uh the other options are shark liver oil on twitter that's at shark liver oil and we're on facebook shark liver oil podcast just search for that and it'll come up oh right i feel <laughs> i'm spent now i don't think i've got enough energy left for the actual cast but let's do it i believe in you you can do it first chapter about Jamie he's still on the road on the way back to King's Landing and he hears in an inn uh, that the king's been the king is dead yeah another example of how news travels around these parts it's pretty realistic that's how you get your news isn't it yeah Uh, more realistic than weird old crone getting visions (laughs) uh, which is how we've we've had news reaching different parts of Westeros before. But this is the more traditional sense, which is you just hear about rumours in an inn. Yeah. It's not a terribly reliable form of journalism, though, is it? Because this is the same way of spreading the news, which has had, like, zombie Renly turn up. And um, what else was it? A kraken appear from the deep and start dancing. Or I forget what it was, but it's just some, like, truly implausible yeah. nonsense. But as it turns out, this one's accurate. Well, yeah, it's accurate in the, the salient point that Joffrey's dead. The details, um, it's a, it reminds me of, remember when King Robert died mm. and the rumours going around, these various fantastical rumours, one of them being that he, he ate so much boar that he just exploded, <laughs> um, like like that Monty Python sketch in The Meaning of Life. <laughs> How did we not do that gag at the time? I can't believe we didn't do that at the time. What a failure. Yeah. And and this one is um, a similar thing. There are all these strange rumours. I think there's something to do with a, uh, something that Sansa did and then she disappeared and uh, a ghost of a direwolf was found stalking around the Red Keep and things like that. So, <laughs> But, you know, the, the key point, Joffrey's dead, is still, I suppose, he's accurate. So, yep, yep. J- J- Jamie doesn't seem that bothered 
Um, he'd never had much of a relationship with his son, did he? No. Um, and I, I still would have expected a certain amount more breast-beating kind of, you know, sorrow. But then maybe, maybe I'm just thinking that Jamie's too nice a bloke, which is... It's quite a trick, really, isn't it? But because he just, he just he responds to it exactly as you'd expect somebody as selfish as him too. He's just like dead, is he? Right. Hmm. Well, it's even, it's even worse. He actually considers, you know, if um, if the gods gave me a choice between bringing back my son or my hand, I know which one I'd choose, and it wouldn't be his son. He's he's a textbook, isn't he? You could almost that's <laughs> that's like a stocking filler idea for Christmas, isn't it? Parenting advice of Jamie Lannister. Subtitle: <laughs> How not to do it. No, seriously, <laughs> how not to do it. <laughs> it's also interesting to compare the um, how he feels about Joffrey and the the lack of mourning, if you like, mm. to how Brienne is almost become a shadow of herself after the news that Rob and Catelyn have been killed at the twins. Yeah, and she's kind of she's completely withdrawn again now, isn't she? She doesn't speak to anybody, and she. She's really, really in the sort of the throes of grief here. Mm. Yeah, and it's such an interesting emotional difference, isn't it, between a character who doesn't give two shits about vows and a character who thinks they're like the fundamental matter of the universe. Um, mm. And the sad thing is that it's hard here not to see, you know, Brienne's honour as a weakness and mm. Jamie's total bastardry as a strength. And that's just like, yeah. that's not a nice, nice thought to have, really, is it? No. In this scene, I think they get the news from this guy, one of the Pipers, um, mm. who's travelling under a peace banner, and he is a bannerman of um, the Tullys, mm. and he's off to, I think, King's Landing or uh, to to offer his, you know, to bend the knee. Yeah. Uh, they're basically saying, you know... Uh, it's just an example that the war's winding down now, isn't it? And it seems it's just mopping up the one or two rebels now, mm. and any main challenge to, to, the, to the throne, especially from as far as the Starks and the Tullys are concerned, is over now. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an interesting chat between Jamie and Brienne about what happened at the Red Wedding and controlling your bannerman. Oh. And J- Jamie says, you know, uh, the, the the phrase aren't unusual insofar as every, every ma- major lord has these unruly bannermen, like the Freys and the Boltons, yeah. and it's one of the key things you've got to do is control them. Yeah. And obviously Rob has managed to do it. And for whatever, you know, you can have a go at betrayals and things, but um, it's a failing on his part in some sense anyway. And he compares it to ta- to his dad, to Tywin, mm. how, you know, the re- the reins of Castamere came out of uh, a story <clears throat> how a, a minor house decided to challenge the Lannisters and and Tywin executed everybody in the house. Yeah, and uh, and nobody challenged him after it. Yeah, and it's an it's again it's this uh, it's this ruthlessness versus I suppose honor. Yeah, and um, and how honor can sometimes be a weakness. I tell you what I liked was um, was a bit of bit of backstory, a bit of kind of a more reflection on on Tywin Lannister's kind of past, and just mm. reminding us that he's a total bastard. <laughs> Yeah. Um. <laughs> Although we get um, later on, the, the last chapter we're doing today, we'll come to it later, but Sir Kevin Lannister, Tywin's brother, um, does quite an impassioned defence of Tywin's past. Uh, but we'll get, back, we'll get on to that in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's get them back to King's... So they get back to King's Landing. And they're not very far away, Brienne and Jamie. They make it back to the capital. They get a bit of a funny welcoming party um, once once everyone recognises who Jamie is. Sir Loras, who's now part of the King's Guard. Um, sees Brienne and immediately wants to kill her yeah. because yeah. he blames her for killing Renly. Yeah, and it takes Jamie stepping in, sort of being a uh, do, stepping up as the Lord New Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Yeah, and uh, and grabbing Sir Loras and basically putting him in his place, yeah. saying, um, "You know, you answer to me." Mm. Uh, what did you make of this exchange? Um, I th- well, I thought it had a lot more potential than was kind of brought out of it because I kind of I felt like they're going to have a fight because that would be quite spectacular, and I'd quite like to see Jamie sort of trying to somehow make up for the fact that he hasn't got a left hand, but actually hasn't got a right hand. But actually, I think this is more interesting um, because this is Jamie working out how to project authority when he no longer has the power that gave him all of his authority in the past. He still has his money, but he no longer has a sword hand. 
and like in mm. in this world you know you, it could it could just be all over for him but um but he's like in this moment you kind of see him working out how to retake his place as a Lannister of command mm. um so I thought it was quite interesting although I do hope we see more between these two um these two characters because I think there's there is potential for quite an interesting vibe there yeah definitely there are two other meetings in the end Brienne gets arrested uh, Jamie arrests her mm. um, and he does it pretty much to avoid her being attacked in the street mm. but the sort of the look she gives him is as if he's betrayed her and he just sort of shrugs his shoulders and thinks you know further fairly exasperatedly oh that figures you know trying to do something nice again and mm. you know it comes across as I'm being this terrible guy mm. <laughs> there's always this sense of self-pity <laughs> with Jamie isn't there a little bit yeah there is a bit and I kind of wonder whether that's like whether that's in there to just provide a counterbalance to the fact that externally he's such a shit or yeah. like or if we're going to get more of kind of emo Jamie as time goes on I, <laughs> I would quite like that if he just sort of really embraced his kind of capacity to have pity parties for himself and just sort of <laughs> sat around listen to the Smiths <laughs> grew his hair out like it would be it would be fantastic wouldn't it started writing poetry about it and nobody understands yeah, it. No, nobody knows what it's like to be me <laughs> they just see the, sure they see the money in the titles <laughs> but they they don't see my desire to be a dancer <laughs> and then the music swells the curtains pull back that, that would be a twist, wouldn't it? I'd love that. Wouldn't uh, you love that? It's just one of these one of these absurdly kick-ass nights was like, actually, I want to be a glee singer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, there are two other meetings with Jamie here, um, two other encounters, one with Cersei and one with Tywin. Let's do the Cersei one. And this is um this is a controversial one. Mm. Um <laughs> let's just take what happens first. Mm. He he encounters Cersei um in the set by the dead body of their child of Joffrey and they end up having sex next to him next to the body um, now obviously that's hard to put into words anyway but um, well beyond that it, the controversy kind of stems from the, the series rather than the book here but mm-hmm. in the book it seems it's kind of Cersei tells him to stop you know, when he starts it and then, but sort of fairly quickly, uh, no fairly quickly turns into yes. Yeah. Um, and in the series, it's it's not that at all. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's just seen, it's, it, it looks like just a rape scene. It is. Um, she's saying yeah. no, 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 and he just does it anyway. Yeah. And it's interesting that in the scene, people talk, when you hear the actors and the directors involved talking about that scene, yeah. they seem to have tried to do it as if it's the same as the book and it just comes it's across just, completely differently it's so clearly not like I was yeah. surprised because I saw the episode before I read this bit of the book because I failed at doing my homework um, <laughs> and I was really because the TV series scene I was like that's like three of the most astoundingly wrong things three of the biggest taboos in my culture broken all at once it's mm. like it's, there was there was this um, there's this comedian called The League Against Tedium and he had a one-liner where he was like he was like trying to be really evil and he was saying you know imagine my sin on a scale of a woman beating to death her firstborn child with her secondborn child it was like that it was like how can you make this any worse than it is oh I mm. see like that so not just incest but incest next to the dead body of the product of that union and then in the TV series, they were like, clearly that wasn't enough. And at a certain point, you have to think like, <laughs> at a certain point, you have to be like, are you that desperate for the headline? Are you really? Like, it, does, the, it, does the material not strong enough? Do you need mm. to make it slightly more shocking? In the, so in the book, it's, in the, yeah, in the book, it's less wrong. Um, <laughs> but, but like, I don't know, I don't know how you, how you distinguish between wrongs at that point. Yeah, I mean, in the series, that scene—I mean, it's so detrimental to Jamie's character as a possible as a grey character as well. You, I don't think there's any recovering from that. And uh, when I'm watching the series now, I almost have to discount that that scene because it kind of ruins the rest of the story from J- about Jamie and yeah, Cersei. Yeah. 
it seems to me from the comments from the seems to me from the comments from the directors and people like that that they've just made a mess of it <laughs> and it's not the story they were trying to tell. Yeah. I think I don't think there's much doubt in the book that I mean it's from Jamie's point of view. Mm. So you kind of if you if you ever I don't know, if you'd if you'd ever read a chapter about a rape from a rapist's point of view, maybe it'd be they'd see some kind of consent there which wasn't there. Mm. But I don't I think George Martin in the book tries to make it clear that it isn't a rape. Yeah. You know, the way that Cersei talks and uh, yeah. during it, the things she specifically says. Yeah. Um move it more towards the sort of oh no, we shouldn't be doing this here, but let's do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think it's like I think in writing this scene in the first place, you've sailed extremely close to the wind. And, do you know what I mean? And then you've like, you know, the problem is, you know, Mm. it's difficult not to see this as a scene which kind of, it doesn't celebrate, but it certainly doesn't judge that kind of thing because George Martin and the the books and the TV series both take a lot of joy in portraying shocking things. Mm. Um, And one of the downsides of doing that is that there's surprising and then there's shocking and then there's shocking and then there's repugnant. And, mm. you know, and they've, they've clearly, uh, when making that scene, totally lost their, their compass. Yeah, and the thing is, um, in the series and the TV, we, you tend to, because of the setting that it's put in, you give characters more um, license in terms of things like the, the level of violence and some of the, some of the sex as well, to do things that, that, that would be unforgivable in, you know... Yeah. It had they be had they be set in in you know in the present day, yeah. But I think the line that the, the line is still there with something like rape. Yeah. Where it doesn't matter in which you know period you set it. If you have a character doing that, they they're un, un, unredeemable. Yeah. Yeah, and that's very very yeah. I mean, as with all of these, this is this is an area where I I feel more justified in my kind of lack of trust of George at this point where I'm like I don't see I don't see how this can be a character point that's kind of you know I can't see how you maintain shades of grey when there's been something like this yeah although I, I was saying in the book that it, that hasn't happened it, it hasn't happened it doesn't feel like it's happened actually that's I wonder no. if that'll have a knock on effect in the making of the book from the TV series because that's a like you say that's a really significant difference isn't it where Jamie in the book is this kind of grey grey character and mm. and in the uh, and and in the in the TV series now he's just he's 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 just on the dark side, you know what I mean? Like there's not there's mm. not an ambiguity there. But the thing is in the in the series, I mean we can't spend too, too much longer no, sure, in the series. Sure. In the series, his um his actions after that and around it, before and after that scene, mm. um is seen is is that of a, a character who's had his troubles and is trying to trying to put things right you know the way he acts with Brienne and the way he tries to save Tyrion um, during the trial in the series um, is like a it's almost like a a redemption story and then you've got this this very this this completely (laughs) ridiculous scene in the middle of it that blows all that out of the water and sort of ruins the whole story and and that that's what makes me think that along with the the comments from the directors, that they just made a mistake in how they did it and they shot it wrong, which is unbelievable, Doesn't, isn't it? For that quality of production, yeah. mental, mental. Yeah. Anyway, so so moving on. Yeah. Okay. Let's 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 move it on. Um, so after this happens in, I mean, uh, after this happens in the book, uh, Jamie. Uh, talks about how he wants to run away with Cersei. You know, has this big grand plan, hmm. and Cersei shuts it down straight away. Yeah, and says, you know, you're mad. You know, that's that's not how we do things, and that's not the game that's being played. You know, hmm. um, uh, very interesting how the relationship changes there between the two of them, hmm. and, and obviously Jamie, what Jamie sees in terms of this relationship and what Cersei does are kind of different. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's also a a meeting between Jamie and Tywin. Uh, we find out that uh, the mountain is uh, has put Harrenhal to the sword, and the fate of uh, Vargo Holt, the goat, you know the uh, the, the leader goat. of the brave companions, or the bloody mummers. Yeah. Um, he was found gibbering and dying in a in Harrenhal, 
the the, the wound from when um, Brienne bit off his ear as he was trying to rape her has become infected. Which is, uh, couldn't, <laughs> Jamie loves that. It's so poetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> couldn't happen to a and, nicer knobhead, could it? Yeah. And also, uh, the mountain seems to be slowly killing Vargo. Vargo isn't even dead yet. The mountain's just torturing oh, him to death. Which is, all the people you yeah. don't want to have around when you're dying slowly of a horrible infected wound. He's not. Yeah. He's not the sort of bloke to turn up with the sort of, sort of calpol and plasters, is he? <laughs> be like, you know, <laughs> it's all going to be all right. No. Yeah. Now, there's this argument um, between Tywin and Jamie as well. Tywin wants Jamie to leave the Kingsguard, um, especially after seeing what what's happened to his hand. Mm. Um, Tywin almost flies into a blind rage when he sees that, and you think, God, it's lucky that the guy who did it is already dead because. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know the mountains torturing him to death, but I'd imagine there'd be a fate even worse if Tywin got involved. Yeah, you'd, there's not many uh, people you'd back to have the kind of creative imagination to come up with something worse than being tortured to death slowly by the mountain. <laughs> but Tywin Lannister is that man. <laughs> He'd find a way, wouldn't he? He would. Considering what's been done. Yeah. But um, yeah, Tywin wants Jamie to leave the Kingsguard and, and inherit Casterly Rock. Yeah. You know, basically put right the wrong that was done when Aerys took Jamie away from Tywin and brought him into the king's guard but jamie doesn't want to do it he wants to he wants to stay here yeah. uh, in king's landing and um and he's worried about his honor and he he's not happy with the marriage arrangements which are being made uh, it's all tied up around cersei as well yeah and it, you, i kind of felt a little bit sorry for tywin and like of all, all his best laid plans <laughs> and his kids are just fucking him up at every turn aren't they i do love that though because that's that's his chickens coming home to roost isn't it it's like you can be as good at politics as you want but your kids are reflections of you and if you for your entire life have been a merciless intransigent over intelligent manipulative son of a bitch guess what's going to happen when you have three children you know what I mean? And so I really feel a sense of Tywin getting a taste of his own medicine here. And um, yeah. and I was really surprised by this scene as well, because I would have thought if there was more more of Cersei in Jaime, then he would have been like, ah, an excellent opportunity to cement my power and control everything. But instead, mm. he does exactly the same thing that Tyrion's done. And he just goes, who are you? My dad. Fuck off. Like, he just, yeah. just absolutely throws it all back at his feet and says, no, I'm going to do this. Yeah. Um, I wonder here whether Tywin's not thinking at some... Is he not slightly tempted to go and talk to Tyrion? And just be sort of like, mm. got it wrong, sorry. Um, but of course he can't now. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Tyrion's under suspicion for the death of Joffrey and, and all of that. Um, so he's kind of like... It's this, this awful irony, this character who has done nothing that wasn't all about his family is being, is being abandoned by those in the middle of his family. Yeah, it's funny because everything he does, I mean, he does terrible things, Time, but it's, yeah, his entire um, reason for living is to ext- continue the line and make things as best as possible for his family. Mm. And the the one thing he can't change is that he had three kids and none of them are really up to doing what he's doing. I suppose <laughs> yeah. the only one possibly is Tyrion. Yeah. But, um, but he can't see that, so maybe that's a flaw in himself as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know. he's a festival of ironic flaws, isn't he, Tywin Lannister? <laughs> it's as if George Martin went, we're going to have one character in this that's really properly Greek. <laughs> Let's bring him in yeah. exactly like a Greek tragedy from 3,000 years ago. Powerful <laughs> but flawed. Unable to see his own ability because he's blinded by his virtues, which are few <laughs> but become vices. <laughs> That's how I imagine George Martin talking, by the way. I don't care that he's from Santa Fe. That's the way he talks. Yeah. She's like the, the world's most bookish Euripides scholar. Sorry, carry on. <laughs> right, let's go over to Davos, over on Dragonstone. And the plot. The plot. Um, Does it thicken? He and a number... Yeah. He and a number of others who are calling themselves King's Men, as opposed to the Queen's Men, who are coessing around... Um, Melisandra and the Queen um, hatched this plot to get Edric Storm away um, I think they've heard the news that Joffrey is dead and Davos knows that it's not going to be long now before Edric's sacrificed Yeah. Um, because Stannis was in two minds before Joffrey died so they um, they they spirit Edric away 
they they get him out of the he's he's having a lesson with the maester and they go in and take him stick him on a boat and get him off the island and then davos is waiting for the judgment he stays there and thinks right well we'll see what stannis decides to do with me now um, and it's a really te- just the waiting yeah. is a, it's written really well as you're waiting with him and you're thinking oh what's going to happen yeah here? man and I like I don't know about you I was standing in the background cheering him on oh yeah go on Davos get in there son like it was like <laughs> it was really beautiful because he's been so self-effacing and I find him the more time we spend with him the more interesting a character I find him because he does something like this which any with any other character in this whole world would be um, would become about them and about their kind of... It would be subtly about their desire to be more powerful than their masters. Mm. But Davos is this character who seems to be genuinely driven by his devotion to Stannis and his devotion to what's right as well and what he thinks is right. So, so like, he does this thing, which anywhere else would be the start of a war, and then he just goes mm. and talks to the king. And he's like, I yeah. don't really care if I die, I did the right thing. Like yeah. amazing in in this story universe as well, a character who's so married to what's right but isn't a total pushover. Like he's kind of yeah. he's, he's sort of like an, an understated and less kind of alpha male version of um, Ned Stark. Is how he kind of feels mm. to me. Yeah, and it's interesting. He's he's both married to what's right, but also intensely loyal to Stannis. Yeah. So much that he won't he won't give either of those up. And they seem sometimes like this. They seem diametrically opposed. Mm. That he can't save Edric and remain loyal to Stannis, but he he does it by, you know, if if he if he chose if he made the choice and thought right, Stannis is wrong. I'm saving Edric. That's all I care about now. He should be on the boat with Edric. If he thinks Stannis is right, he should be standing next to Stannis and just trying to counsel him against it but going along with it if he's, if he's yeah. completely loyal going along with it yeah. so he finds this middle road where he can kind of do both yeah and but it's intense it's Im- incredibly dangerous for him loyal without um, being a yes man incredible to see yeah and also when there's someone like Melisandre he's going up against where she sees things in the flames yeah she sees the future so you, you know plotting against her is so dangerous he saw how it happened with Crescent the old maester yeah how she saw ahead of what was going to happen yeah so him and all these kingsmen are taking a, such a uh, such a risk because at any moment she could just find out um but it turns out she doesn't because she's as, as surprised as Stannis when um when Davos tells her what's happened mm and that that Edric has got away. Yeah. Um, Stannis is more. Uh, it's interesting, and I kind of liked him a bit for this. Stannis is more tired than than angry, and more sort of <laughs> exasperated. It's like oh, Davos really You've done that. <laughs> yeah, and actually, there's nobody who can do kind of stony anger like Stannis. So he must be mm. proper knackered. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also that deep down. I think he kind of knows it's the right decision. Yeah, um, yeah. And he's he, he's he spent at the last chapter. He spent almost half of it talking himself into sacrificing this kid. Yeah. And still wouldn't do it. And now he seems to just be about at the point where he's going to do it. And I don't know. Maybe there's a beneath the sort of exasperation and anger. There's mm. a sense of relief as well that this choice has been taken out of Stannis's hands. And maybe that's kind of the ideal. Um, situation for him because he didn't want to make the decision, did he? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Like he's kind of he's desperate to be talked out of it. Mm. Now, uh, the news of Joffrey's death has arrived. We hear another um, little example of just how psychopathic Joffrey was. Do you remember we had this? I mentioned it maybe the last cast or the cast before that. Robert beat, like, knocked a couple of Joffrey's teeth out once. Yeah, yeah. Because um, he was so angry with him over some business over a cat. Well, we find out about this cat now, and it was that um, Joffrey was told that this cat was pregnant um, because the other person telling him it thought he might be interested in, you know, life the and birds and the bees. Reproduction, yeah. And Joffrey's response was to find the cat and slit open its belly to have a look at them. These two, these unborn kittens, and obviously he, he he took it to show Robert, and Robert <laughs> <laughs> gave the response that you would expect Robert to give, and yeah. knocked two of his teeth out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it's just how this this example of how Joffrey was really was 
insane oh, in some ways. A wrong and from birth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, that's true. I was saying last time that at the start, I didn't really see him as being this malevolent. I was saying I don't think, I couldn't see how he would have attacked, why he would have attacked Bran. I still don't necessarily mm. buy that, but this is a strong argument in favour of that position, isn't it? The, like, yeah. the position that he's just always been crazy. Um, yeah, I suppose it moves towards it. Yeah. Um, the the punishment for Davos looks like it's going to be death. Stannis gets as far as pulling his sword out, thinking, "Right, this is it." Yeah. And Davos's ace in the hole is is a note. Is this the is this the note that we had last time, which you thought was was Bosia, or is it another one? What do you think? Um, I don't know. Um, I hope it's not the bullshit one, because otherwise he's made he's made a big <laughs> cliffhanger out of really not very much. <laughs> yeah. Um, I assume it's the one about. The cold, the cold gods are coming from the north, sort of thing, um, mm. and perhaps he hopes to kind of ingra- re-ingratiate himself with everybody by being like, actually, Melisandre's right, but the point you can't go killing this kid. You've got to go and send your soldiers over or something. I don't know. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I know. What do you think it is? Um, well, it could be, could well be that, couldn't it? Uh, it's hard to think of what other notes we've. I think if it isn't that, it's something else that we haven't seen yet. Yeah. Um, in in so, which case, putting the cliffhanger there is not playing the game at all, is it? <laughs> yeah. He opens the That's note fair. which everybody knows about and started reading, and then the next chapter is going to be, "Well, good heavens, that was an entertaining, rollicking read, and no mistake, Davos, I won't kill you." Just now. <laughs> <laughs> like it'll turn out to be a transcription of comic songs or something. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on to the next chapter, John. It's time for some action. Action. And I mean action. Massive action. Yeah. Massive multi-million billion budget action. Uh, so, John, uh, this isn't the action at first. He's having a dream and he's a I, wolf. I was going to say, when I started reading this chapter, the reason that this, this whole chapter landed so well with me was because it's full of great action, which I love. But the start of the chapter started with, he dreamt. And whenever I read that at the start of a chapter, I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> more more cryptic crows were there. More hints that he might have something to do with wolves, lords. You know what I mean? And then, and then it turns out to have there's like a page of that, and then it's all like kind of. And then he took his sword out and kicked ass. Yeah, <laughs> which I'm much more alongside. So he's having a dream about being a direwolf and being under the the crypts at Winterfell. It's, it feels very much like he's just troubled by how um, he's not a real Stark. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's all tied up around that. And I'm sure Catelyn made that clear to him on numerous occasions as he was growing up. Um, he's awoken to the sound of two horns blowing, which, as we know, one horn is Rangers returning, two is wildlings, and three is the others. So he's um, he gets up, gets ready to go up to the wall, um, afraid and ready for a, a fight, but kind of happy that it isn't the others. Mm. Um because at least he knows how to fight wildlings. It's interesting that he remembers something Mance Raider said to him, which is um, uh, when the dead walk, uh, walls and stakes and swords mean nothing. You cannot fight the dead, Jon Snow. No man knows that half as well as me. Yeah. Um, I love that quote about Mance, from Mance because it kind of shows why it really gives you a window into his motivation as well. Yeah. That's why he's getting all these wildlings together and having this massive assault on the wall yeah. it's not just because he fancies a bit of raping and pillaging yeah. it's because dead things are, are walking around now yeah. and he's seen it firsthand. and if anyone's going to survive they've got to get south yeah 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 and uh, do you know what the longer John's storyline goes on I thought I really felt like it was dragging when he was up in the north and wandering around with the wildlings because I didn't really see where it was going I didn't really see how it tied mm. into the world but now he's back I see how it's just this massive bag full of plot and he's able to be like, I saw this, I saw that, this happened, this happened, this happened, you know. Mm. Yeah, I like how as well, um, this man's Raider quote, ahead of what happens next, when it's a massive wildling assault on the wall, um, it moves it slightly away from good guys versus bad guys. You still feel like you want the, the watch to win, mm. but it just reminds you of the motivation for why this massive army is so desperately trying to force its way through the wall. Mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, it's because of what's coming behind them, and it's because of just fear and wanting to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, so so John goes up to the top of the wall, and there's this fantastic battle. It starts off in darkness; all they can see is just the odd fire um, below um, on the other side of the wall. 
and they're just shoot, firing sort of arrows blindly and uh, trebuchets are, are shooting burning pitch down into it. Yeah. They see like silhouettes of mammoths moving around and loads of people, but they can't really see what's going on. And I quite like that. It's an unusual battle, isn't it? Just blind, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, and, and really atmospheric for all that. Like I, I really liked it, and I really, I really felt it, and I think that's one thing which is like must be part of, must have been part of battle, which I think we forget, which is the bit where you run at somebody and it's all very kinetic and quick and chaotic, is quite short. Most of it, if you're in terms of like archers and siege warfare, is standing up for eighteen hours at a time firing arrows, and mm. and all that sort of thing. And I loved it. I thought this was really powerful depiction of that. Yeah. Uh, the the guy who's leading the the Night's Watch at the moment, Donald Noy, who's mm. the armorer, um, decides to go down to the gate, which is the key point. They can't climb the wall, um, the wildlings. The only way they're getting through is if they take the gate. So Donald Noy and four volunteers go down to to defend the gate. It's such a narrow passage where you don't need many people. Yeah. But um, it doesn't sound like a particularly enticing prospect. But he he gets volunteers nonetheless and goes down. Yeah. And it means John's in contr- in charge yeah. of the wall. Yeah. And as as dawn breaks and the sun comes up, they see just the size of this wildling army ahead. And even John, who's seen it before, has never seen everybody all together. Yeah. And it's just it's such a massive throng of people. Yeah. And John gives this speech uh, to the the other people on the wall, and really, it's a really uh, effective one and it's a real morale boost isn't it and it shows yeah. that he is a he can be a really good leader yeah absolutely in fact in fact Matt I would go so far as to say this is his Independence Day moment do you, <laughs> you care to give us a, a uh, an example of what that can sound like <laughs> we will not go quietly into the night <laughs> yes we're gonna survive <laughs> 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 beautiful and it is that speech isn't it and it, it's quite a trick to put a Hollywood cliche in the middle of a book like this and get away with it and it's yeah. beautiful absolutely fantastic speech and you've been waiting yeah. for this from John this whole time haven't you because he's a, he's a good guy with good skills and you're like come on you're surrounded by useless wankers you know <laughs> do something with it do something with it and he does and it's fantastic yeah um, it's interesting that during the, the, this next stage of the battle uh, Mansraider sends basically a column of giants on mammoths down the centre towards the gate, mm. along with a massive battering ram. And then either side, you've got free men and free folk as well. Mm. Um, and there's, it's interesting that there's the knights watch at the top of the wall. They don't have the numbers, but they have the wall and they have the discipline, and they're firing on John's command yeah. and all this stuff. Yeah. And the wildlings are a bit more of a rabble, aren't they? Yeah. And even the the sort of formation breaks up before they even get across the killing ground yeah i quite like that idea as well of the the fact that you've got you've got the massive army um fairly far back from the wall and then you've got this open ground which becomes littered with corpses and stuff from the from the night and that's the point where it's it's no man's land effectively yeah yeah and you never really think think about that in a middle medieval context either that there's this sort of two lines of defense almost if you like and then this middle point yeah um, and where, in the middle of it is just carnage. You don't want to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought it was quite. Um, it, it was really kind of well done scene. Tell you what, it reminded me of was. Um, do you know horrible histories? Yeah. The um. Well, when I was a kid, I used to have the Romans, the Romans book, the Rotten Romans, I think it was, and um, right. and they they had this cartoon explaining why the Romans beat the British when they invaded Britain. And despite, right. there were like 10,000 Romans and 100,000 Brit- Britons. And um, the Romans were organised and the Britons weren't. And the cartoon was just like all these Romans in neat little rows. And then this massive kind of crowd of of, uh, of <laughs> yeah. woad-clad warriors going off to the horizon. And then one bloke at the back going, you're not so fucking frightening. I mean, he didn't swear. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, um, And yeah. I just have that wonderful image. Like I kind of, for some reason, part of my head for this whole battle just like had this little scally character at the back of the the wildling army going, who the fuck are you then? I love you. I love you. <laughs> and then yeah. just like legging it when it turns out that the, the Night's Watch are far more organised. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a pretty desperate battle, but they they manage to the Night's Watch win, don't they? Yeah. You know, the, there's this battering ram which looks like it could cause problems, but they manage to stop it. 
um, the the sort of two flanks of uh, of the wildling army reach the wall and then realize they've nothing <laughs> nothing to do because mm. they can't scale it and there's no way through. Um, so they just retreat in the end. Yeah. And yeah, the Night's Watch managed to managed to hold them off without any casualties either. Um, although <laughs> there's this guy called Spurboots with a peg leg, and I love this at the end to, to, to really what a sum, great name. To, yeah, Spurboot. Uh, to, to wait to, to, to sum up how like well they've done and how big a victory it is. Um, they like John's asking around saying, "Was anybody hit by any arrows?" And uh, this guy goes, uh, "They got me in the leg." My wooden leg. <laughs> <laughs> and it's that and then and the credits roll, isn't it? At that moment. The wooden leg. Da 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 <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was a great moment. Yeah, yeah. Um so John gives command of the wall to Gren now. He's the next up for the for the command. Gren and both Gren and Pip can't quite believe it, but he's the next best guy. Mm. Um I think Gren doesn't realise how, how talented he is as well, isn't he? Yeah, He's another good true. character yeah. like that. Um, John heads down the wall and he's a bit concerned about the fact he's not heard from Donald Noy since the night, you know, when they got, when he left the wall to go down to defend the gate. Yeah. So they're going to have to check that out. And they go in. So it's this massive tunnel through the wall and various gates at intervals. So, so they go into this massive tunnel and before they get almost halfway in, they can see lights, and John's thinking, oh, this is bad news, because <laughs> it yeah. means the gate's been broken down. Yeah. And this was, again, this was... After this sort of euphoria at the top of the wall, I thought the atmosphere changed really well here, mm. and you get this sort of... this plodding down through this dank tunnel, and it's getting more and more... You're waiting for... You know, you, there are, there's blood on the floor... And then they get closer, and they're sort of waiting to see what horror awaits them. Mm. And um, I mean, the scene is horrific, isn't it? Yeah. It's basically this giant has has managed to burst through the the main gate, the oak gates, and then there are these series of metal gates after it, yeah. sort of metal grating. Yeah. And these four men and Donald Noive have sheltered behind it fired arrows at this giant as he's crawling towards them and then try to stab it through the through the grate and then there's the, obviously the giants burst through the metal like torn the metal apart yeah. to get through and then killed everybody but um Don, Donald Noyes managed to kill it um as he's dying himself and he sort of ended up wrapped in this sort of death grip with the giant yeah um, what did you make of that? It's so atmospheric. Like from the moment where it where it says, you know, John could see light ahead, I was like, I could, I just had such a vivid image of this scene in my head, and and a vivid image of the flashback of just one giant getting through. Because he says, doesn't he? You know, just one giant did this, and you have a real mm. sense of like, sure, the wall's a good defensive thing, but once it goes, you're done. And and I just I could just absolutely see it so clearly in my mind's eye, you know, kind of the giant thrashing around, the um, mm. uh, you know, kind of squeezing through, and then the fight, and then this death grip with Donald Noy, brilliant, top to bottom, brilliant scene. Yeah, yeah, and uh, obviously <clears throat> they decide that they, they walk past it and out to onto the other side of the wall to have a look at, at the devastation outside, and they you know they're saying you know we've got to. Shore up the defences now. Mm. Um, interestingly, the the giant uh, John recognises as that Mag the Mighty. Do you remember the one who laughed at him? Oh yeah. Um, and there's that quick moment. He remembers Egret's song and um, about the giants, the last of the giants. And he has even in the midst of this has that sort of sudden pang of sadness about just what is having to happen here. Mm. Yeah. Uh, that's all I've got for this bit. Any, anything else? Oh, John's. Um, it also means that obviously Donald Noy's death means John's in command uh, now. Not just temporary command of the wall. He's he's the only guy left to lead the Night's Watch. Yeah, and like, yeah, like I said, I've been waiting for this moment for ages. I love that he was leading it on the top of the wall. You know, I love that he's in charge. I I love this. I think it's mm. far better, frankly, than most of the Night's Watch deserve. <laughs> Um, but you mm. have this. I think this is really important because otherwise you've just got this massive threat coming from the north and nobody to stand against it. And you just mm. think, even though he's, he's very young, you think, could he pull this off? 
Could he, yeah. could he pull it off? Because if he does, I'm going to be really happy. <laughs> uh, next chapter, Aya. 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 <laughs> Going for a walk, Aya. <laughs> She's alive. <laughs> yeah, apparently the, the, the line, the axe took her in the back of the head, doesn't mean that she died. No, we need, to says co- it was- we need to coin a word for when George does this sort of thing for us, don't we? We need to yeah. plot tease or something. Like, it's just, it's not, it's not on, George. <laughs> it's not on. Yeah, yeah. There is, there's the delight that such a great character and a popular character, Aya, isn't dead. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, t- it's sort of tinged with this. Well, I feel like I've, I feel like you've cheated me a bit there. Yeah. I feel like you've done <laughs> yeah, me a yeah, bit, George. Yeah, exactly that, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, she's got she's got a horse now, so she doesn't have to ride with with the hound. Her horse she, um, she found running away from the twins, so she's called it Craven. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. <clears throat> uh, there's a, a real sadness about Aya now because she doesn't she feels completely lost and um, that nobody wants her. Yeah, you know, there's nobody left to to try and get to now. She's no. She, the whole point was getting to her, back to her family, and now her family's dead. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that the hound saved her life, even though there doesn't really seem to be any any value to her anymore. There's no one who's really going to buy her. Well, doesn't he? Doesn't um, he say he's going to take her to the to uh, to the Vale, sell her to Lysa? Yeah. Yeah, but even so, he doesn't sound like he's particularly confident that he's going to get much out of it. Mm. It's sort of like, well, this is the next best option. Yeah, yeah. But um, it just seems that her value's plummeted, really, mm-hmm. from a completely, you know, uh, cold perspective. Yeah. But he's still keeping her around. Yeah, I, I wonder why that is. Mm. I'm a bit nervous, because this is, after all, the hound. Um, yeah. I have to say, though, I don't know... Like, it kind of made me feel a little bit better about it that the character herself recognised that there wasn't really anything that she could do or any place that she could go. Because I felt like that about mm. Arya for a long time. Like, I yeah. felt quite clearly that she wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, mm. So clearly she's still alive for a reason. Great. I, I wait to see what that reason might be. Because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, right now it's just Arya goes for a longer walk in Westeros. Yeah. Now uh, they, they remember coming across this uh, this guard of uh, of, of Mar- Marek Piper, who was uh, one of Rob's bannermen, mm-hmm. and he was this guy's just a foot soldier, and he they come across him dying, and the the hound gives him the gift of mercy and kills him. Yeah, but uh, his his recollection just gives you another example of how the betrayal happened, sort of down in the camps where yeah. they were all drinking together. You know, this guy and the the guy from the phrase. And um, and in the end, he turned on him and killed him. Mm. Uh, and it, it made me think: with this massive b- betrayal, uh, is there a, is there a problem here with it? Insofar as how many people were, were in on it and how it remained a secret? Yeah. Because if if all the foot soldiers knew, um, surely someone would have let slip. I just find I I always think with these kind of plots. The wider the circle, the the bigger the chance it's not going to work. Yeah. And I just wondered, is it is it believable that all the sort of fray men knew that this was going to happen? Yeah, that's a very good point, isn't it? It's not like they can all have got a text at the same time. Like, text from your employer, kill whoever you're drinking with. Well, yeah. All right, sorry, mum. You know, like, it's not going to work out, is it? Um, yeah. No, I don't know. I hadn't thought of that, but I think that's that's a very good point. Um, it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose that possibly the commanders knew, yeah. but then it seems a yeah. How do you get the message across to your men? Yeah, who, yeah. Who've been celebrating all night? Is it like is it like baseball signals where you do the sort of little wavy hand above your head and you do a little chicken dance and you kind of wave wave your mm. elbow against your other hand and stuff like that. Um, I realise this is a podcast, but I was actually just doing all of those dance moves in order to elaborate. <laughs> you get yeah. more quality here on Chart Live Royal, um, but you know, like, how, yeah, you're right. How do you do that? Maybe it's um, you have a couple of like your, your your most trustworthy units of men, you know, fifty to hundred men who are who are in who know it, and um, the thousands of others kind of don't, but have been told. Um, 
don't don't drink, don't get drunk. You need your wits about you tonight, and don't tell them anything else. Yeah. And they think it's odd, but you know, they, there's not much. So even if they were to say to a load of Starks, "Oh yeah, we've been told we can't drink," um, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that some shit's about to go down. Mm. And then when it happens, if the the sort of your loyal groups start slaughtering people, then the fight breaks out and everybody realizes that they're gonna have to start fighting each other, kind of but without knowing the reason. And then because you've got these groups of people already, you've got the initiative straight away, so it turns the side of the battle. I don't know, maybe that's how it works. It feels like a risk. Yeah, it And really it feels is. like I'm really reaching to find a reason how you could do it. Yeah, yeah. But I yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. Possibly. We'll see. Yeah. The Ayer and the Hound come across this village uh, just at the, the foot of the Vale, and... Um, the, two things happen here. One, they find out that getting up to the Eerie could be impossible because the mount, remember the mountain clans who Tyrion armed? Oh, yeah. Well, um, they're still armed and they're knocking around now. So yeah. you can't actually... The Vale's effectively, effectively cut off now, isn't it? Yeah. You can't get through there without a massive army. Yeah. Yeah, because um, the... And it was, always, it was always a bit out of the way. Um, mm. But now, yeah, ooh, troubles, troubles. See, the the knock-on yeah. effects of... I was going to make a joke about development there, but you wouldn't get it, and neither would anybody <laughs> else listening to the podcast. <laughs> so screw it. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Yeah. Well, I think it is, it is... You could draw a parallel with modern day with sort of the whole arm the rebels idea, which uh, never come, yeah. It never works, does it? That's it. This is, this uh, is, this is Henry Kissinger in, in yeah. britches, is what this whole situation is, isn't it? Yeah, proxy wars, they never work. Uh, um, when will people learn that? <laughs> when will the governments realise? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, um, the, the other thing that happens here is quite sad. Uh, it's quite just quite a sad comment on Arya's character and the damage that's been done to her mm. when this little girl who's Arya's age follows her around tries to make up friends with her. And this little girl's got this soldier... Yeah. Uh, this toy soldier, a uh, little sort of stuffed soldier she calls uh, soldier. And in the end, Aya takes it off her and pulls his head off and rips the stuffing out and says, yeah, now he looks like a soldier. Um, and it's just sort of, yeah, sums it up, doesn't it? That, that's what happens when you get a kid who's seen all this death and war around her. You get They get damaged. Yeah. Um, in the end, the the hound wants to stay in the village. He thinks it might be a good place for them to sort of settle down for a bit. Yeah. But the villagers don't want him around. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, you know, he maybe isn't the complete monster that we are sometimes led to believe. I think should the had the villagers said this to his brother. Yeah. Um, you might have not had a village there by the next day. Yeah. Whereas the hound sort of takes the payment from them and says, right, fair enough, and off they go again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, once again, the Hound is a sympathetic character, usually only by comparison with his brother. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, there's that kind of like I can't name anybody in the story universe who's more straightforwardly evil hmm. than uh, than the mountain. Point? Anyway, carry on. Okay, let's move on to Tyrion. Last chapter for today, and um, it's time for Tyrion's trial. He's in a cell, and uh, there are going to be three d- judges: Tywin, his dad, Mace Tyrell and Oberyn Martell, mm. the Red Viper. And he thinks, if he asks for trial by combat, because he doesn't believe he's going to be able to argue his way out of it, mm-hmm. it's going to be risky because the mountain is going to be uh, the opponent, and he's not sure who he could get who could actually kill the mountain. Mm. Um, there's this chat with Sir Kevin. Sir Kevin's the guy who keeps visiting him and gives him news from, t- from his dad. Sir Kevin's uh, ty- Tyrion's uncle. Yeah. Tywin's brother and he seems quite a straight down the line um, guy and when it, when Tyrion says to his uncle I didn't do it yeah. he says I wish I, I wish I could believe that Tyrion yeah yeah and it shows that I think he's quite a good conduit for just public opinion how yeah. even people without a motive to have Tyrion in the ground yeah um, think he did it yeah 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 absolutely and oh oh it's heartbreaking isn't it really like, because I'm I'm still I'm still firmly on team Tyrion didn't do it, um, mm. and yeah, and here it is. It's worse for being given dispassionately, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. Well, mm. I wish I could believe that. 
Yeah. Not you hateful imp. You killed him. You killed him, you bastard. But just like, you killed him, didn't you? Somehow that's yeah. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Tyrion's one ace in the hot. Sansa. We basically get Tyrion being deserted by everybody here. Yeah. Sansa obviously has already run away. Mm. He thinks his one chance at killing the mountain and winning a trial by combat mm. is if Bronn does it, the same way that he did it in the in the Eyrie. Yeah. Saved his life once. He tries to get Bronn to come to him. He finally succeeds because Podrick begs him. But um, he finds out that Bronn's pretty much abandoned him as well now. Mm. He says, you know, I've been offered a castle and a title by your sister. Um, you always said you'd pay me more, but it doesn't look like you can. Mm. And, you know, it, I, I, maybe I could beat the mountain, but it's a big risk. It's probably, you know, one false move and I'm dead. I don't see the point. Yeah, and he he abandons him, and it's it's kind of almost like in a mafia kind of you know strictly business kind of thing, isn't it? He's yeah, still yeah. you still get the sense that Bron likes Tyrion. Yeah, it's not that he doesn't, doesn't like it, but you know, business is business, and he's a sellsword at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, and he's a sellsword in the very core of his bones, isn't he, Bron? Bron seems to be the only character mm. in this entire book that where the system is working for him. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if, yeah. you, if you're brutal, vicious, and uh, and untrustworthy enough, you will rise in Westeros, and, yeah. uh, and he's living the dream. But I do like that idea of Bronn as a kind of like capo regime, kind of like yeah. this is nothing personal. I'm, you know what? I'm not going to do yeah. a Marlon Brando impression. No, I'm not. <laughs> There's definitely that though, isn't there? There's yeah. definitely this is business. It's not personal. Yeah. But um, and you get that sense as as Bronn's walking out, he kind of um stops and turns around and says, you know. Had a good run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is kind of like a breakup of the weirdest bromance in the world, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, we had it so good, kid. You know. Yeah. We, we'll always have that other time that I fought for you in trial by combat and a man was pushed out of a sky door and plummeted to his death. We'll always yeah. have that. Yeah. Remember the good times. Remember the good. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh, and a sword to the eye is exactly that. <laughs> uh, so looks like trial by combat's out. Um, it's interesting that I mean, does does Tyrion know that Jamie's back? Maybe he doesn't. Oh yeah, because question. he doesn't even consider Jamie, does he, as a as a champion? Yeah, I actually thought that when I was reading this because, of course, last time he was in this position of needing a champion to fight for him, he called on Jamie, and that was really mm. witty because Jamie was miles away and was never going to turn up. Yeah, um, but um, but I, yeah, I did wonder why he didn't ask this time. Mm. Maybe he thinks that Jamie and and you know because Jamie's related obviously as well to Tywin and Cersei mm. that he might not come down on his side. But you think he'd ask because their relationship has, from what we've seen briefly in the first book, seemed very close. Mm. But um, yeah, yeah. he doesn't. It doesn't cross his mind anyway. Yeah. So we, so we get to the actual trial. There are various accounts and uh, cases against Tyrion. Actually, it's a mixture, isn't it, of things that actually happened but told in a context which make them sound even worse. Yeah. And just outright lies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so you've got someone like Balan Swan, who's uh, one of the King's Guard, who seems one of the decent guys, and he talks about how Tyrion threatened Joffrey after that riot. Yeah. And he's just sort of telling it like it is and almost trying to say, yeah, but he had reasons for it, but <laughs> they don't want to hear that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then Merrin Trance, another member of the King's Guard who hates Tyrion, and he just hams up as much as he can about yeah. you know, the threats that Tyrion made. And the worst bit about it is that they all have to pretend that Joffrey was a hero during that battle. And if there's one thing he <laughs> wasn't, it's a hero. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, it's awful. Awful. Yeah, Grandmaster Pycelle turns up and gives a rundown of all the things, poisons that have that have been stolen from his stores. It's funny Tyrion looks around at one point and just thinks, "How did I make so many enemies?" Yeah, yeah, and I think that was in 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 another book that would feel a little bit clumsy, but actually here I think it's entirely justified because he's he's made a very believable plot where somebody can save an entire city in time of war against all the odds and be hated for it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like it's just that's that's politics, right? Yeah. Now the um, the the court adjourns for a while, 
and that night Tyrion gets a couple of visitors one's from Sir Kevin Lannister again mm. and Sir Kevin says look confess and Tywin will let you take the black and go to the wall mm. and <laughs> Tyrion's first response is well yeah that's what Ned Stark was told and we all know how that ended yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean you know Tywin's not Joffrey is he and you get the sense that this is a genuine offer yeah and there's a there's a bit of you I feel like it's very unlikely to come off but there's a bit of you that would quite like to see Tyrion on the wall wouldn't you like to the, Tyr- the Tyrion mm. and Jon show that would make those chapters much more interesting yeah I'd enjoy yeah, that a lot yeah and it's possible but I mean Tyrion doesn't seem too keen but nah, he's thinking what other options it. have I got yeah. yeah it's interesting that this is where we get Sir Kevin talking about how Tywin isn't the sort of monster that Tyrion sometimes thinks he is mm-hmm. and we all think he's almost so Kevin's as much talking to us as to Tyrion here isn't yeah, he yeah, yeah. and he's making this impassioned case for how you know back in the day Tywin's dad was quite open handed and a bit soft and his bannermen ran roughshod over him and didn't respect him yeah. and Tywin basically had to single handedly sort of take back the power for his family through this ruthlessness and some of the things that he saw uh, the way that he saw his dad treated made him that kind of character that he had to be ruthless because he he couldn't let that happen again and he always remembers how badly his his father was treated for being decent and nice Uh, and then there's this whole thing about how you know he never got the gratitude of Aries and various other things I don't know, did you buy into any of this uh, case of the defence for Tywin's character? Um, I'm not certain. I'm not. I'm certain that it's not, like, exonerating. But I, I really liked it. Like I said at the start, like, there's, there's yet more of this kind of, this back story, you know? Mm. Um, and um, it's so good to kind of, to get an angle on, on Tywin. Because Tywin's quite kind of magnetically evil. But mm. he's never really explained. Like, he's in danger of being a bit kind of deluxe but two-dimensional but mm. actually getting a sense of him like what drives him from his past and stuff and in a way at the end of this he kind of becomes a a tragic character who does unspeakable things because he made a decision way back in his youth to do something a certain way and he's just never been able to stop doing it that way mm. um, and and that's defined him that's defined you know, his lordship, that's defined his kids and that's defined the kingdom. All out of this desire just not to look like a pushover. And all of a sudden, you know, you've raised kids who have this kind of monstrous sense of self-entitlement and kill whoever they want to get whatever they want. And you yeah. have an entire family where you could fit everybody's morality into a single thimble. Like, it's just yeah. you, just consequences. And I love anybody who tells a story on that start type of scale and that, like, builds a character that big. Yeah, there are other parts in the book as well where um, it's suggested that Tywin did have sort of a a bit of a softer side as well, um, which his wife brought out of him, and he was he was very devoted to his wife. Mm. And when she died, it's one of the re- main reasons he can't he can never really forgive Tyrion for the crime he didn't you know he's yeah. had no yeah. responsibility for. Yeah. But she died giving birth to Tyrion. Mm. And there's this sense that I think one of the characters says at another point in the book that Tywin sort of closed that off. Yeah. When when she died, that part of him just hardened and all that was left is this is this guy who's utterly ruthless and completely obsessed with the family line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um is interesting. Yeah. I I also quite quite like the Sir Kevin character just because it's a guy who obviously just, I mean, Tyrion says it, he says, you love him, don't you? And he says, yeah, he's my brother. And he's, yeah. he just completely thinks the world of Tywin. And um, he's, a, he's a classic sort of beta male, isn't he? Yeah. As far as he's, yeah. he realises that he's never going to be the great leader. Yeah. But um, he knows that his brother is, so he just sort of sticks by him, does thing. you know, yeah. he's competent. Yeah. And he, ra- he does very well out of it. Yeah, that's very true, actually, isn't it? Yeah. The other visitor to Tyrion's cell is uh, the Red Viper mm. Oberyn Martell and there's this chat about you know what happened to um, Oberyn's sister Elaria who was raped and killed by the mountain yeah. and her kids who were killed by the mountain and various other Lannisters and he gets 
a confession out of Tyrion insofar as Tyrion says, yeah, the mountain was responsible. And Tyrion defends his father. Hmm. He says, yeah, but my dad didn't give the order, even though everyone knows he did. Yeah. And um, then at the it ends with <laughs> with the Red Viper saying, right, um, how about this for an offer? And he offers to, to be Tyrion's champion. Um, basically the job that Bronn doesn't want to do. Yeah. I can I say the only word that I have in response to this prospect is delicious. Just the very idea of seeing the Red Viper back up all of his kind of weird, strutty arrogance in his own power against yeah. the mountain of all people. Like I want to see that fight. Did Did you see this um, this twist coming? Um, no, but I wasn't looking too hard for it. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether it is obvious to somebody who's slightly more astute than me, but I was just like, I've kind of given up trying to predict what's going to happen to Tyrion when he's in, in, in captivity. So, yeah. so I'm like, ah, okay, that's going to happen. Right, there we go. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I thought, I, mean, I, I didn't see it coming, but I, when it did, I thought, oh, what a, yeah, what a clever way out. Mm. It may, it, one of those ones that... You don't think about it at all until it's said, but then when it's said, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I don't know, is this is this George skillfully writing himself out of a corner? Like he's got himself here and he's like, how the fuck does Tyrion get out of this? <laughs> <laughs> Red Viper, yeah. that's it. Red Viper, that'll do. No, I doubt that he did that because there's, there's too much plot, too much significance, and he's too smart to end up in that situation, but it's still quite interesting. Yeah, of course, the Red Viper's still got to win. Mm-hmm. And the mountain's no slouch, so uh, so we'll see. Uh, so, I mean, that brings us to the end of this week. Um, as ever, if you've got any comments to make, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com is the email address, or Twitter, at sharkliveroyal, or Facebook, sharkliveroyalpodcast. Just search for that. There we go. Do you want to know what, do you want to know what we're reading next week, Dave? I do want to know what we're reading next week. Of course you do. Of course you love it. Of course you do. <laughs> the... Um, <laughs> The first chapter, obviously, the next one up is Jamie, uh, a white book sat on a white table. That's page 339. You must read as far as uh, page 403, which is a chapter about Daenerys, which begins, Danny broke her fast under the persimmon tree. There we go. Persimmon? Yeah. I think persimmon. I th- yeah, I'm English. Persimmon I'm going to put my, the emphasis on the, the second syllable. Yeah, I've, never, I've never had any persimmons. So. Per- <laughs> persimmon. Khaleesi, <laughs> the persimmon tree. Khaleesi, why don't we fast under the persimmon tree? <laughs> fast was that what you meant to say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, so okay. Well, that's. Just... <laughs> I can't wait to find out what's happened with them now. They've had their their epic lovers tiff. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah we don't know yet, do we? Yeah. Um, well, 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 we will find out, maybe, thanks for you, probably the week after. But either way, it's going to be a hell of a ride. So uh, until then, until I'm then, Matt. And I'm Dave. We've never done that before, no, have we? It's really. a goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>